what actually makes the difference. I've been fascinated for years by what makes the difference between someone who makes it and is, quote, successful, whatever that means to you, and someone who doesn't. What makes the difference? And I've been asking these questions for years to different people. How did you get where you got to? What happened? Where did it go? And the interesting thing is that it doesn't really matter what the industry is, what the career is, what the job is, what the business is. The answers are quite often the same. And today, I have a huge treat for you where we explore what makes the difference in a completely different field. The extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. So welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. And I'm very excited to have with me today, British-born Elliot Lester. Elliot started his career doing music videos, and that's actually where our introduction together has come. He's since gone on to produce films, and his first feature was Love is a Drug, which starred Lizzie Kaplan. And he's gone on to produce collaborations with HBO and Brad Pitt. He went on to direct Aftermath with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you've had an incredible career in film, Elliot, an incredible career. So I'm very excited to have you here and probably bring us back from Arnold Schwarzenegger and ask the question, how do you even get started in this? Like, how did you get going? How did you even know you wanted to be in film? Uh, Well, thank you for that very kind introduction. (laughs) uh, How did I start? Well, I started actually in London as a production assistant, and I started at the very, very bottom as some people do, it's, you know, not everybody does. And I remember I just graduated university and I became just sort of inflamed with the idea of working in the film business. And I was living in an apartment in Vauxhall and I would walk into town every day, which was a couple of miles because they didn't have a car. And I would go and I'd have this address book called the 411, I think it was called or something like that. And, um, Back then, you know, before computers, you'd have this big address book. And I would go out and I'd hand out my resume to people. Wow. I'd knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Elliot. It was very precocious. Hi, I'm Elliot. Uh, I want to be in the film business. And I, some people were very, very nice. And then some people were not so nice. But I got this job <laughs> starting at the bottom. And I, I worked on all these Japanese commercials in London. And it was, it were commercials that big celebrities that would do, but they would never see like Harrison Ford and, you know, Winona Ryder. And, um, my, my first entree in the business was learning on Japanese commercials where nobody spoke English, but it was exhilarating. <laughs> it was, you know, the thing <laughs> I was so eager to please because I, I probably didn't know very much, but from there, I, I sort of got very impatient, which I think drove me to say, you know what, I'm going to go to America. Because America to me represented Hollywood. I sound so dumb, don't I? Hollywood and the big news and the the history of (laughs) film. And I was like, I'm 22. I'm going to be a Hollywood film guy. So I ended up moving to Hollywood 
and I had about $800 in my pocket and four phone numbers and moved wow. in with these two wonderful, yeah, with these two wonderful Irish girls who were very sweet and helped me get my first jobs. And, and my sort of first jobs was work, were working on country and Western videos as a production assistant and running around. And to be honest with you, I was equally stupid because <laughs> I didn't know anything about country and Western. I had no idea. <laughs> But I, I, I came to learn that I was working with these gigantic country and western stars like Tim McGraw and Faith Ever, Faith Hill and Brooks and Dunn, like giants. They're like the equivalent of Bruce Springsteen. Anyway, I quickly sashayed out of that. And the thing that I loved about America was there was no sense of your own history mm. and there was no sense of class. So everything was a vertical. Everything could be achieved. And it was limitless. There was no sort of glass ceiling. You could just keep going. And I, what happened to me was I got lucky. But the thing about being lucky is you have to also be ready to meet the challenge when you get lucky. Mm. So what happened to me was there was a movie called American History X, which oh. was directed by this Londoner called Tony Kay. It starred Ed Norton. Ed Norton, I think, got an Oscar nomination for it. So Tony was this very maverick director and I was asked to come in and be a first AD which is a very big position for a guy who's 23 and first AD is like being a manager on the set I had to organize the cars and the cast and the locations and I was completely unqualified but Tony didn't care You're my AD. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> so I did pick up some reshoots on this movie American History X and I have to tell you, it became a marketing tool because the mm. movie subsequently went on to do well. It was in the papers the whole time. There was a big controversy around it. And um, I dined out on it. People would want to meet me. You worked on American History. It was marketing. It was Tell like, me about know. it. Yeah. <laughs> what I found was that people were less interested in what I could do, but they were more interested in the stories I had. Mm. So I capitalized on that. I realized, look, if you want to know about the crazy, come and sit with me. We'll have lunch, maybe something good. And I got a lot of work that way. So I graduated from being a production assistant after about a year to being a first AD, which is like usually takes years to become a first AD. I was like 23, 24. And I real, I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I'm now this first AD working with you know, Tony Scott and Vincent Gallo. And I was working with these mega people. And I quickly became really in demand on music videos because at the time, music videos were very big budgets. You needed a lot of energy to do them. And I was just had that amount of stupidity to believe that I could get it done. Because that's the thing when you're younger, there's no consequence. You know, if you break your foot, it'll peel back if you cut your finger off it'll grow you know you you just don't you have the energy for it so you know i i started doing music videos and i i was doing jay-z bon jovi stevie nicks missy elliott i worked with these again these fantastic artists and i worked with these directors alongside and i started to learn about creativity or my version it was sort of my film school and I quickly sort of realized that 
it was always about growth. It was all about what was going to be the next step. So I did, I was a first AD for a few years, maybe four or five years. And around about 28, I'd sort of made money, started investing quite heavily in property and things like that. And did that because uh, I lived in an apartment that cost me like $450 a month and started putting money into property, realizing at that age, it didn't really matter where I lived, but I wanted to sort of build some capital. That might be uh, the sort of Northwest London Jew in me, like always <laughs> put away for a rainy day. Squirrel it away. If you- yeah, I mean, you know, prudent reserve, I think you call it in your business, prudent reserve. So um, I got very sort of like after a while of like maybe four years of being a first AD. And you have to remember there are guys who are first ADs well into their fifties, but after four years mm. being as impatient as I am, I was like, you know what? I can't fuck this. I'm going to be a director. I want to do, I want to sit in the big chair. <laughs> I want to be a director. So I think sometimes in life, if you make a proclamation and you make an assertion, you just become it. And I sort of took on the airs and graces of a director. And it was funny because the first thing I directed, uh, a good friend of mine is an amazing performer called Santi Gold or Santo Gold. And I said, listen, I'm going to make a music video for you because I think you're an amazing artist. Anyway, I made this video. It was, it promised to be better than it was. But the thing I remember about doing the, my very first job creatively was I knew less about being creative than I realized. But what was exciting about that was I had an upward trajectory. I mean, I couldn't get any worse than I was. And I was terrible. What I, what I did, I took this, I took every sort of impulsive thought in my head and put it up on the screen. I had a dwarf on a tricycle. I had a man stroking a fish. <laughs> I had someone taking a piss in the corner. I had a sort of 75-year-old fairy dancing. I mean, like things that sort of made no sense and they were incongruous. But you see, I loved it. I loved it because what I'd done is I'd vomited out of my mouth creatively. And to some degree, you, you sort of go, oh, you know what? It's just got a little bit of glimmer that I think I can turn this into something a little better the next time around. So the next, should I just keep rambling? <laughs> should I keep going? Well, I think I'd, I have a couple of thoughts for you. I don't think you can get to version two without doing version one. But so many of the people that I speak to, Elliot, the workshops who want to launch businesses, they're so afraid of putting version one out there that it stops them. Like, How did you have the confidence just to do it, just to put version one out there? How did that happen? Oh, just stupidity, blind stupidity and arrogance. I just went, sort of went for bro. I didn't care. I just didn't care. I was just like, you know what? You can be held back by other people. And I had this feeling in my head, which was, don't let anybody who's never done anything tell you you can't do something. And I sort of live, I still live by that maxim. I still go, you know what, your iniquity and your own personal failure is situational to you. It's not situational to me. Look, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I love them. And I love my failures as much as my success. And you know, you don't learn through success because when you're successful, it's easy. You know, I've been lucky. I've been nominated for Golden Globes and Emmys and things. And it's wonderful. And everybody is around you 
not telling you the truth <laughs> because they're all afraid of you. <laughs> yeah. Like, but when you're failing, you sort of get the truth and you get the level. Oh, you know what? You were good a few years ago, but now you're not great. And then you sit and you listen to that and you're like, there's a lesson I want. It's fickle. Anyway, I'm not sure I answered your question. Maybe I did in a roundabout way. Well, I think it's really interesting. So if we rewind right to the start of your story, you said you were in London, you printed out your resume mm. and you're just knocking on doors saying like, give me a job. That's some grit. Like that takes some energy. Not many people have the bravado or the energy or the confidence just to knock on doors. Was that something you were born with? Is that something you learned? Did you get it from your parents? Like, where does it come from? My father had an incredible work ethic and he got us working in the markets in London. Oh, wow. And I worked, back then, Wembley Stadium had a big market. You could go and buy clothes and bagels and fruit and veg. And my father got me this job working for this man called Harold Himes. And Harold would smoke profusely. I think he had more smoke going through his lungs than oxygen at times. And my father lied to him. He said, you should hire my son on a Sunday. He's 13 years old. I was 11. <laughs> and he, he said, teach him how to be with people. And I learned, I learned hustles in the markets. I learned how to hustle. I learned how to deal with people. I learned how to make more money from money I had. So I had a little, this is going to sound awful. I had a little arrangement because a girl I went to school with, she worked at the bagel and coffee place. I would go to Harold to give me the money for the, the bagels and the coffee. He's like, all right, give me the money. Give me a 20, 20 pound note. And I go up to Lisa and I'd say, Lisa, she knew, I gave her a wink. She gave me 40 pounds back in change, plus a bag of bagels and a bunch of coffee. And then at the end of the day, I'd split the money up with her which is a terrible thing to admit, but I learned the sort, I learned how to be tenacious from that experience. Always, I've always worked. I've always worked. You kind of get thrown into the fire when you do something like that. I mean, my dad gave me the opportunity when I was younger. He was struggling and said, you can't have any pocket money, but you can have the ability to earn. So you can take anything from my sportswear shop, mark it up and sell it at school. So the only way I could get enough money to buy sausage rolls at break time was to sell sportswear. And you just learn so much from just being thrown out there, like having to sell, having to knock on doors, having to talk to strangers. And it was scary at the time, but I wanted a sausage roll at break time. Well, there you go. It's sort of like there's a phrase in Hollywood. Don't go and get my coffee. Go and get me coffee money. That's interesting. What does that mean? Don't go and get my coffee. Go and get me coffee money. Yeah, go and get, get me the money to buy the coffee, you know what I mean? Which is a way of saying be entrepreneurial, be industrious. So there was a little bit later in the story, uh, you said that you got lucky by being asked by Tony Cabe by being first AD. You got lucky. Yep. Do, you, do you believe it was luck or do you believe you were putting yourself out there or are you being modest? I hardly think I'm ever modest, but I mean, I'll do my best. Oh, I, can, I can feign <laughs> earnestness if you want. I mean... I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not good at it. Was it luck? I think I was definitely good at putting myself in situations. I was definitely good at sort of being close to the action. I think it was lucky that I was asked by Tony Kay. Absolutely. No doubt. 
but I was in that environment, I suppose. I think also people, I, I don't want to sound too flaky because I am in California, but I think there's, there's an energy exchange, you know, and I think people gravitate towards something that feels positive and illuminating, a little bit dangerous, vivacious. And, you know, in that environment, which is incredibly creative and kinetic, you know, I was like a, I was a little bit live. I think that's what probably, that's what probably did. God, this sounds so arrogant. (laughs) Well, no, I think we have this expression at the business school. The best definition of sales I've ever come across, Elliot, is sales Mm. is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. Like that energy transfer that comes from me. I have to get enthusiastic. I have to get passionate. If and I can do that, I can infect the audience with it. So even in cold, hard sales, I think there is exactly an energy transfer. I think it exists. Yeah. You've broken it down, I think, perfectly. I, I think enthousi- it's an American thing as well to be enthusiastic and passion and goes against our, I mean, we're British. Well, I'm American now, but we're British and we do tend to be a little bit like, the idea of how you're feeling, things are good. It just isn't ingrained in our culture. And in America, it's just not like that. So I, if I'm echoing your sentiment, selling in America is easier than selling in England. We, we're mistrustful of it. We're mistrustful of passion, enthusiasm. We look at it like recklessness. Whereas in America, it's still the wet, the American West. It's still the last frontier. And the, it has a sort of maverick mentality. I'll tell you, Arnold Schwarzenegger told me this, just a name drop. He was said, you know, the thing about Europe is it's collectivized, it's socialized. That's never going to happen in America because people are still out in Colorado riding horses and panning for gold. There's something you said earlier, which really resonated with me. You said that you just went to America to make it happen. It was Hollywood. It was this thing. And it it made me smile because I did exactly the same thing in 2019, Elliot, probably like 20 years after (laughs) you did. I was like, I want to go to Hollywood and write a movie. I had the same kind of boyish, like, I'm just going to go and do it. And I think like, I'd love the audience to get, if you have a dream, there is a way just to get out there and do it. And it looks like you have something to add to that. I mean, providing you're prepared to fail. And, you know, there's that great phrase from Samuel Beckett, fail, fail again, fail better, which is effectively saying you can't fail. Even a failure is still a success. If you can put your ego aside and go, I'm just going to go for it. Now, let's say you came to Hollywood. A lot of people come to Hollywood and they write scripts. And a lot of people are really talented. But a lot of people write their script and they stay in their room. They don't go out and meet people. You're only going to hear the words no. The worst case scenario, someone's going to say, I don't want to meet with you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. The problem is not when they say no. The problem is when they say yes. That's what I found. (laughs) (laughs) Then you've got to make it happen. Then you've got to deliver. Then you're in trouble then you're really in trouble because then, yeah, you have to deliver. You have to sort of know what you're doing. And then it's sort of, then you're learning about the sort of frottage of Hollywood and how that moves, which is a whole other sort of animal. So what do you think your biggest learning has been about finding opportunities? Because you seem to have gone through your career 
discovering opportunities, finding them, taking advantage of them. And like, you've had incredible success with that. Like, how do you spot them? How have you found them? Well, there's, there's a lot of debris. <laughs> but the website, <laughs> there's a lot of debris. I think you are, uh, along the way, you meet certain people and they say little tidbits to you, little markers. And then my first director I worked with was a guy called Richie Smythe. And he said to me, effectively, and I'll get to the point, effectively, as a director, it's about taste. So what I try to do is I try to find things not necessarily driven by the market, because I think you've got to be careful when you're timing the market. I do things that I believe are good and worthy. And I look for sort of human interest stories. I look for things that sort of appeal to me. I mean, there's a great sort of phrasing in writing and directing, which is you sort of, you do what you know. And the thing that I feel has served me is that I like people and I like humanity. And therefore, I'm going to, in my work, I'm going to reflect that back. So you should never sort of be ashamed of where your sort of mind is. You know, if you love if you love cars and you gravitate to cars and do your car movie, if you believe in sci-fi drive and you're driven and that's what's sort of in the back of your mind and drive that. So I try, I, I go to things for me that are conscious. The projects always have a base layer of humanity and consciousness. That's pretentious, isn't it? Well, uh, I think there's something <laughs> in this, flaky. Elliot. We could start a cult. It was st- <laughs> we could do. I think I might have done at some places. Well, I think the businesses that I have been most successful in are the ones that I have found. I have purpose, passion, like the Rebel Business School was set up to go out there and help people build their own businesses to make money without going into debt. And it was designed to help people. And I was passionate about doing that for people. And I do think the way to get wealthy over the long term is to help enough other people. The thing about that is if you make wealth your goal and only wealth your goal, you're going to be pretty unhappy because the space between, listen, I was broke when I came here and I'm not broke now. And I can tell you if I'm taking a 23 year piece of string and I'm looking at like that and the money and the thing, the feeling hasn't changed. You know, driving a nice car and driving a banger when I got here, I still have the same feeling. I'm still driven by the creativity and the desire. The money, money is like, I know money is important, but you can only eat one lunch at a time. Do you know what I mean? I know plenty of rich people (laughs) not have. I don't think making money the goal should be the goal. I think experience should be the goal. Like what's going to enrich my life? not what's going to enrich my bank account. Yeah, I found that profit is a byproduct of adding value to other people's lives, doing the right thing, getting out there and living it and creating the experience. And my goal has always been make a difference, add value, get out there. And the profit comes when I do that really well. That tends to be the byproduct. And that's definitely one of the things I think have helped me to be successful. So being, being of service. Yeah, being of service, help help these people, help make, I help them. Right. So I've been very fortunate. Also my Facebook profile, my Instagram profile, they're all open. And I get regularly 
people asking me questions, asking me advice, younger people, how do I get into the business? And I never, ever, ever refuse a conversation. I never say no. I always say yes. And only because people were good to me and you have a sort of responsibility to sort of pay it forward, so to speak. I invest my time, not in my peers, but in the people behind me. I say behind me in as much as they're younger than me. And I do that because they still have the curiosity and they're still interested. And I find that I think people my age, you know, I'm nearly 50. They're sort of like more comfortable. They're looking at, you know, the, the not the next 60 years of their life. They're looking at the next 20 years, maybe 30 years. Whereas if you're 20, you're looking at a limitless, limitless journey. And there can be a level of hunger at that age. There can be a level of desire and hunger that they want to do things and you give them a piece of advice and they take action. And that inspires me whenever I see, like the people that I end up working with are the ones who actually take action on what I've said and then come back, say, I tried it, this worked, this didn't. And it gives me great energy seeing people actually doing this stuff. Well, there's that. There's also a little thing in as much as never ask for a favor twice from the same person. You know, I mean, if someone, if you go to someone and you want something from them and they say, no, you, sh you can't go back to them. You should always sort of expand your network and find the people that ultimately say. Okay. So if you were speaking to those people right at the start, they've got their energy, mm. they want to get out there and do it. What is the advice you give to them? What do you say to these people about breaking through, getting started, getting out there? Well, first of all, how much do you want it? How much do you want it? And then if you can tell me this is the only thing you want and you have no backup plan, that's a good place to start. Then, like I've said earlier, never fear failure. Never accept it, but never fear it. That's a, a transient feeling. You know, no, there's no permanence to good or bad. You're constantly driving through. So enjoy that part of it. From a practical business point of view, expand your network. Always keep expanding your network. Always keep trying to meet new people. Because, you know, like in my business, it's actually not a very big business. There are only a sort of handful of players. There's a few thousand people, tops, and at some point, you will meet all the key players. Now, as you go further and further up, if you're thinking about it in terms of a pyramid, there are fewer people to meet. But the goal is for you to get from the bottom through the mess to the decision maker. That is important to sort of drive yourself there. Because, you know, in Hollywood, there's a lot of layers. There's agents, there's managers, there's lawyers, there's publicists, there's assistants. And then there's the people that can really make the decision. So. Your learning curve is how do you navigate each layer to get to where you need to get to? And I would say you should pursue that. And that's the same for creativity. You know, you should pursue your creativity with the same vigor. Certainly when you, you're beginning, your work is not going to be good. It's impossible. That's a fluke. <laughs> yes. Who's my laughing? first, I am, because if I showed you the first video I ever did, Elliot. I did my first ever video. I basically sat my business partner and me down on my cream leather couch with dirty dishwashing in the background and filmed us talking about our first ever event. I look back at it and I cringe, but it got 50 people to turn up to my first event. Like it worked, but I cringe. My videos now are way better, but I never would have got where I am without putting that first video out. 
But I bet you, I bet you this, when you turned on that camera, you didn't think that this was crap. You probably thought this is amazing. Well, maybe you didn't. But if you did, what that says about you is that you're self-possessed and determined. I was like, I'm giving it my best shot. This is the best I can do. I'm going to give it everything and put it out there. That's it. And get it done. Get it out there into the world and see what happens. And version two was a lot better. Version three was way better. Yeah. (laughs) What would be your advice to people about, because there's a fine line between being a perfectionist and never releasing something and being slapdash like I might have been at the start with the dirty dishwashing in the background. Like, where's the line? How much do you focus? How quickly do you get things out? That's a very hard question to answer because with films, you do have a deadline. You have a certain amount of time to, sh- to pre-production, post-production, which is where you're editing and putting it together. So you don't get too much time to linger. Deadlines are good. Deadlines are useful. They're very useful with writers. I don't look at my work once I've done with it. So you put it out there, that's it, it's done, draw a line and move on. Um, yeah, I don't look at my work. I worked with Jared Leto. Jared Leto and I went, went, went around the world and we made music videos together. And I remember talking to him about his, you know, his a huge acting career, he's won, an, won Oscars and things like that. And uh, he was talking to me, he goes, you know, I never watch my performances, which is not uncommon with a lot of actors. And I said, well, that's really, that's, why? He goes, because I was there. I know what, what it was like. And for me, it's a little bit like that. I can't look at the work because it would take me back to that space and time. And I want to keep sort of moving ahead. Occasionally, I'll look at something. I tend to look at it if I want to get learning. Like if I feel like it didn't go right, then I want to have a quick look or a listen and see what happened. If it went right, I'll move on and do the next thing. What's going right? Because usually it doesn't go right. I mean, like in film and TV, it does. It, the best movie you're ever going to make is the one inside your head. I mean, it's that when you're dreaming, nothing is going wrong. You don't have a problem with the grip department or an actor telling you they're not coming out of the trailer. That doesn't happen in your dream. That is the movie, which is the final story. It always works. But when you get on set and some actors like, you know, I'm not going to name names, but some actors are like, I ain't, I ain't coming out of the fucking trailer. What am I coming out for? Fuck that. You know, <laughs> or like, I could fucking hit you and get away with it. You know, when actors are like, like that doesn't happen in the dream I have. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite a twisted dream if it did. <laughs> but it's true. The best movie you make is the one inside your head. I, and then that's why so I can't look back at it and like remember like, you know, some of the the difficulty. I have to be going forward all the time. It's just like, you know, it's insufferable to sort of sit there and go, oh, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that. It's bunk. So I've got some fantastic advice about how people get going. Have you ever had a situation, Elliot, where you're doing something and halfway through you get the feeling that it's not right? Yes. How do you deal with that? Do you just pivot and change? Do you follow through? Like when you have that feeling... How do you approach that? It's very hard in the moment. I mean, I've definitely had it on some films where halfway through I'm like, oh, this could be a dog. You have to separate the emotion in that time from the duty of the job that you have to do, which can be very, very hard. 
because you know being creative is a highly emotional thing you have to sort of stand there for a moment and be like okay i'm in utter chaos i'm lost i'm not sure how to finish this scene or this isn't working and the actors are giving the point but i have an obligation to you finish the task you know i i I've never, i don't really walk off things you can't you're the leader but sometimes what's nice is you take a break for two, three minutes. This is very important psychologically. Change your environment temporarily, and then you can come back and revisit it. Like, don't force things through, because sometimes we'll, if you force things, will break. But if you go, okay, I'm going to walk outside for a couple of minutes, listen to a different piece of music, change your environment, come back in, and you'll have a different perspective. I think that's somehow I've got through. It doesn't always make the result better, but it certainly helps. It definitely allows you to come back at it with a fresh approach. I think in my early days of entrepreneurship, I was very, this will work and pressing in, pressing in, pressing in. And I didn't take breaks. I didn't relax even for five minutes. And I think that's so important as I've got older and a little bit wiser, just take a step back, breathe, work out what to do and then go back at it. I think that's sage advice. That's why someone gave me a podcast somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Was that condescending? I didn't mean to be. (laughs) No, it was excellent. I love it. It wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't. So how do you go? Because a movie is a huge team of people. Like, how do you go about pulling together all of these different pieces? Because when you're starting a business, there's so many pieces to pull together. So many people, clients, partners, suppliers. Like, how do you pull together a team to create something as big as a movie it's you pick well you know movies there's a so sort of nomenclatura of people a cadre of sort of like technicians and things like that you try to pick people and this is again in business you try to pick people that are going to elevate you i always pick better i try to pick people who are better than me at what they do or the best at what they can. I can't always get the best because i don't always have the budgets to do it but sometimes i do and you try to pick the very best and you listen to them. Listen to people who are better than you. You know, I've been wrong at times. I've definitely been wrong, but I try to sort of be discerning. People will show you who they are quite quickly and you've got to sort of listen to your gut. On that. Am I going to be able to work with this person? Are they going to work with me well? How are they going to fit in? Now, listen, there are people who are absolute lunatic, maverick, wonderfully creative people who are not going to be controlled. And I love that, that kind of person because what it means is that they're, again, limitless with their expression. Actors don't need control. Actors need to be out of control. As a director, you need to be in control because you have the action and the cut. So picking becomes, it's like casting. It's sort of you're picking the right crew for the right role, the right actor for the right role, you know, and that's sort of how I try to do it. I don't pick people because I like them. I pick people because I like their work. Mm, interesting. I don't care about their the friendship or if we're going to have a nice dinner. I would rather you do the work and let me, because, you know, I have a home life. I don't need to be. I, that's an interesting thing. There are some people who live their lives on set and they come to work and the whole environment, everything in their world is their work. And if you don't happen to have that separation between church and state, I think it makes you quite sad. I think it leads to a little bit of an existential crisis because there's nothing else other than working. Yeah, you need 
to have a life. You need to have other hobbies, balance and things to do. When you're first pitching the movie to bring the team together, like how do you think about pitching the vision, getting people excited? Do you think in those terms of I've got to get all these people excited with the vision and bring them together? Or how do you think about that? Well, exactly like that. I mean, how? The process? Yeah. You have to tailor your pitch to who your audience is. And you have to know, what I do is I research who I'm going to be in front of and I tailor my pitch to it. Like if you don't prep, do your intel, know who you're going to be in front of. Like the way I'll pitch an actor is very different from the way I'll pitch a financier or a studio executive. Like studio executives, they represent the money. They represent sort of the safety the how's the film going to do so you're talking to them from like a marketing point of view well we feel this film is a four quadrant film we feel that this film is going to appeal to your younger demographic because of this and this to an actor it's going to be let me tell you why you need to inhabit this role let me tell you why this isn't just a type and this is a character let's talk about the journey we're going to take and you do you you tailor it to them and it's it's all sincere it's all meaningful it's just you know from an oral points of view, you are just shifting the optic. You're understanding their perspective. You can't walk in and be like, well, I'm shooting this on a 235 aspect ratio. We're going to do Charlie Parker back rear projection. You know, like people will look at you like you're nuts. I'm sure it happens. I'm absolutely sure it happens. I think the bit I would love, if you're listening to this right now, what I would love you to take from what Elliot has just said, because this is such an important point for any industry, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, is who is your audience? Who are you going to see? And that defines which angle of what you're showing you need to do. Because when we're pitching the Rebel Business School to housing authorities or housing associations, it's a very different pitch than if we go to a corporate completely different world they care about different things and it's the same thing i'm talking about i'm just tailoring it and showing them the side that they're interested in that's what pitching is about find what the person's interested in find how what you're doing fulfills them and show that side that's absolutely it what elliot said is critical for this stuff when you're launching your business it's sort of problem solving without ego is also, that's the other thing. Uh, it's a use value. Like, how am I of use to you to solve the problem? So here's the thing. Like, you'll get a script. Now, most scripts aren't always great. But if you're sitting in front of an executive who spent five years developing this script, what makes you invaluable to that executive or to, to that financier is if you walk and you go, you know what? Page 50, you know, this particular turn in the scene where the jet goes boom, It's good, but there's a way that I can enhance this to make it better because it's great, but let's make it really great. And as soon as you present a problem solved to a criticism, it sort of makes you invaluable to that process. And that's really what you want to do in any line of business. You sort of want to make yourself the sort of solution, you know, but do it in a sort of collaborative, open way. I love that. It's so true. Finding the problem the person has, fixing it and helping them to fix it in a very collaborative way. So Elliot, like as you've gone through your career of getting from the music videos, from AD to director, and you've just taken these leaps without really knowing what to do, but then you've learned on the journey. Like, have you continued to do that throughout your career? 
Is that what you still do at age 50 compared to age 23 when you started? Or has that changed over the period? I'm a little more measured. I'm as passionate and I'm probably more driven now than when I was in my 20s because I'm focused with my drive. I am utterly relentless still. It hasn't sort of wavered. I'm very lucky. I, my circle has sort of got bigger and bigger and bigger, like I said earlier. And now I'm only dealing with, you know, like I'm working with Tribeca, with Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal. And I'm working with HBO and I'm working with CBS and I'm working with, you know, I'm doing a movie with Peter Dinklage. You know, I've worked with Brad Pitt, obviously, but I'm working in a very targeted way. And I'm putting my energy into the single thing that I'm focused on with them. And in doing that, it sort of has helped me to sort of allow the chatter to sort of die down. Because we all have chatter, you know, we have like, oh, doubt or whatever. But by focusing it, you are able to sort of execute in a sort of samurai way with a single. (laughs) (laughs) So do you still have the doubt? Do you still have the chatter or is it slowly faded? Yeah, of course I have the chatter, but I know it's chatter as opposed to believing the chatter. How do you tell the difference? Because I'm observing it experientially. I always say this thing, it's just like, you know, I've never missed a meal. How many meals have you missed, Alan, in your life? Well, you can probably tell by the size of my belly, not many. But how many meals have you ever missed? When have you ever not had breakfast, lunch and dinner? And I've chosen not to sometimes. But outside of that choice, outside, it's never happened, never, right? Never. Because it doesn't happen. There are very few people that starve. There are very few people that don't in our side of the world, obviously. And I sort of look at that and I go, well, if, I, if I've got the sort of minimum baseline, then I'll be okay. I, the other thing I used to do a lot, speaking to that, was I would wake up every day and I'd be like, if I do one thing towards my career every day, one thing. And it could be the tiniest thing. That could be like watching a movie I love, calling somebody I didn't know. If I did that, eventually it would sort of accumulate. But as long as I did one thing every day, it would be the minimum one thing. And of course, I would always do 10 things, but it would just drive me. It would all add up. It all adds up. And then you look backwards and you go, oh, well, that happened and that happened and that happened. And then it sort of becomes provenance. It's the compounding energy that you put out there. And I always say that an in- I have this saying that I talk about on the podcast, which is the extraordinary belongs to those that create it. But actually, the extraordinary is rooted in the small daily activities of make the phone call, do the thing that compounds over time. And suddenly you reach this extraordinary life and you're like, wow, that came from making phone calls, doing emails, selling. Can I give you a little Zen point of view? Yes. Which I love. I love Zen. And Zen is treat things of great significance with little importance and treat things of little significance with great importance. And what that does is that it sort of levels the playing field. Like you, you can put your energy into making the perfect cup of coffee. The same energy that you put into that is also put into worrying about the future. You know what I mean? And it sort of reverses things around. The other, the other thing is we're sort of in our western environment we're constantly being told bigger better the future the future the future as opposed to what's going to happen in the next five seconds 
And if you're able to slow that down, you'll find that you'll get a richer, you'll have a richer existence. You're more aware of your environment. And as you become more aware of the environment, you're more aware of other people and you're more aware of the impact you have on those people. It helps you sort of sit back and then move forward in a sort of focused way. I'm going to ask you in a second, Elliot, how I and the audience can help you. Before I do that, like, where are you heading next with this? Where is your focus? Where are you going next? Because you said about that singular focus that's really starting to come. Where are you going? I think I'm just going to try to carry on. Where I'm at is I'm trying to enjoy my life in equal parts. I'm trying to love better, live better, work better. I'm never going to not be a filmmaker. That's a commitment I've made. And that's something that I'm responsible to. Now, I may not always have the ability to do what I want, but I always have the ability to think what I want to do and try and take an action towards it. I feel that there's nothing else that I can or want to do Um, in terms of the growth. I just want to keep working with what I feel perceptively are better people or better projects. It's interesting. You sort of have to be discerning and cut out the fat. You know, you can't take on everything. You can't be brilliant at marketing, brilliant at sales, brilliant at being creative, brilliant at It's impossible. But pick the thing you're really, really good at, like I'm trying to, and just focus on that. And then you can, like, like we were talking about the crew earlier, pick the other best people around you. Not people who are your friends, people who are good at what they do. You can't do everything. Well, why would you be able to do everything? I tried in the past. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> It failed miserably when I tried to do everything. It's a very interesting thing. We haven't actually talked about the sort of like the film aspect of it, which is fascinating to me. It's it's sort of it's sort of like wonderfully breaking down movies as a system. Yeah, I'm that's starting to dawn on me a little bit. Oh, Alan's doing that. (laughs) Alan's doing that. It's really interesting. Like no matter what industry I end up talking about. I see the similarities. I see the similarities of building the team and picking the people who are better at you in other areas and focusing on the one task a day. And the stuff you said, it's exactly what an entrepreneur needs to hear. It's the stuff that's made you and helped you get where you want to get to. It's the stuff that's made me. It's the stuff that helps everyone make progress. You're always going to be standing on the edge of the cliff. You're always looking at the precipice, you know, but I think sometimes don't look down, look up in equal measure. So Elliot, this has been hugely fun. How can the audience and I help you? What can we do for you? How can we help? Actually, I'd like to throw it back to you and say, if anybody is curious or wants to know, they should reach out to me because the door is open. And I would love to be able to, if maybe one of even one of your listeners reaches out to me, perhaps I heard you, would you give me some advice? I would do it, of course. It's really about that more than anything else. I mean, I'm just going to, don't be too hard on the films when you see them. (laughs) (laughs) Be kind, be kind. Go and watch Elliot Lester's films. Go and have a look at them. It's got some incredible work. Elliot, thank you for your time, your energy, your insight. You have been phenomenal. Oh, wow. If you had a closing rally for the entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, what would you say to them? Like, what's the closing comment, the closing rally for the people listening? I think 
take all the advice in the world, forget it and find your own way. I think you've got to forge ahead. I think you've got to just forge ahead and keep fucking up. Just keep, keep messing up and you'll get there. I absolutely love that. So stop listening to us, go out there, start taking action and find your own path. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Entrepreneur. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.